Welcome to The Freshman 15, a film discussion podcast where we focus on the freshman works of 15 notable directors. Here's what we do each episode. We talk about a different freshman film, what's good, what's bad, what themes and stylistics the director went on to use in later films, and what was kicked to the curb. Also, we'll give you our opinion on whether the film still stands up if it ever did, or if it's for completists only. I'm Daniel Long, and one time I was escorted out of a casino because I guffawed when I saw someone lose $100,000 at a craps table. And I'm Jeremy Bear, and it wasn't until this episode that I realized that it's it's not going to stop. No, it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop till you wise up. Should we get started? We, you know what? We should, but there's a couple things I want to get to before we get into the meat of the episode. All right. If you're all right with I'm that. Right. I'm all right. So last episode, as you recall, we, we talked about Wes Anderson. We got a decent amount of response from that episode, um, which, I'm, which I'm thrilled about. I know. A lot of people had opinions about Wes Anderson. That whole detractor thing that we talked about last time. Uh, yes. It's true. It's, they're out there. Verified. We keep telling these people to write us. And some have. As you promised last time, Daniel, we will make you famous. And so here, we go. here, here comes your fame. You're welcome. As ordered. A few notes that I'd like to mention from a few people. John Patrick Nelson, who's a longtime listener from the Hold Up podcast, who we've heard from before, said, y'alls didn't mention it. So I don't know if you realize, but that innocent line from Dignan is actually a full on quote from Guns N' Roses' Out to Get Me song. Of course, the line that he's talking about is, yeah, they'll never catch me because I'm fucking innocent. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that was a Guns N' Roses song. I didn't either. And that's, uh, in a way, that kind of makes it cooler. It really does. <laughs> it is something you would say. I can, you can see Dignan quoting. So thank you, John Patrick Nelson. And, and once again, if you're not currently listening to the Hold Up podcast, you should. It's good. Greg from California. Uh, the only thing I didn't love about this episode was how low the film was ranked in Wes Anderson's canon by Jeremy, because I, I mentioned that I would put it personally. And in the, I'm in the right there with half. Greg. Well, okay, so this is the thing that's difficult about this ranking thing, because when you say that, that kind of implies that you feel that it's a lesser movie. It's, it's like true. So, it's like Sophie's Choice picking a Wes Anderson movie yeah. for me, because they're, they're all so good. I love Bottle Rocket. I really do. I promise. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. Daniel agrees with you for what that's worth. I really do. I, when he said it, I was, wow. All right. Well, I don't know what to say. A guy named Nate Dunlevy in Indiana, who, by the way, uh, is an author, and he's also a guy I know from school. And uh, he made some really, really fantastic points, but uh, a few of which I'll call out here. The primary, perhaps only valid criticism of Wes Anderson is that his movies are primarily emotionally accessible to a very specific type of white man. Mm. And he talks about a, a, an experience that he had going to see Darjeeling Limited. Everyone in the theater, he says, was pairs of white guys between the ages of 25 and 35, all seating one <laughs> seat apart. <laughs> yeah, I celebrated. Because you can't sit together. No. Speaking of Wes Anderson, I had a full-on argument is too strong. But Daniel, a mutual friend of ours, is a guy that I went to see Moonrise Kingdom with. Okay. I could tell that when we were starting to sit down, he wanted to do the one seat apart bit. Really? Yeah, I don't stand for that business. It doesn't make any sense to me either. No, I mean, I, and look, I'm not going to cry like homophobia or something like that. I understand that guys have difficulty being physically close sometimes. I don't have that issue, Daniel, as you know. Oh, right. Because typically you're on my lap when we're doing this. It's true. You don't know this, but we actually record these episodes holding hands, which took Daniel a while to get used to, but I just told him you got to deal with it. But whatever. Well, just the, a sweat. 
It's, that's the thing that's tough. It's not so much the holding hands; they just get they get clammy. It's the clamminess. But I we we and and I had the discussion with him, and I said, "Listen, you just need to know that if we're going to watch a movie together, we're going to be seat next to seat, not just because it's more polite to other theater goers. Right. You don't want to take up two people; shouldn't take up three seats. I agree. But also, I mean, what is this? If I see something that I like on a screen, I wanted to be able to do a. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. You know what I mean? And you can't do that with the seat in between. Or share soda or popcorn. Yeah. See, now you're joking again, but I'm serious. I like the, I like to be able to uh I like to be able to have the nice like the knowing nods and stuff with No, who I going. agree. I like sitting next to people. I don't yeah, I don't like sitting apart from each other. Yeah. But I digress. Uh Nate says if you're not that kind of guy, uh, as in he's talking about not a Wes Anderson kind of guy, you'll 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 likely find the entire thing off putting. But he even went as so far as to compare, um, to actually talk about the Wes Anderson clerk's difference. He even compared it to our current political situation. I know, it was remarkable. Yeah. And, uh, and he even said, in the, he mentions, in the age of Trump, I feared our shared preference for Anderson over Smith says something about us. We like what we like and don't like what we don't like. Yes, it's easy to say we like quality and skill and effort and emotional investment and feel good about that. I worry a little that it also says that I have honest contempt for ignorant a-holes who smoke weed and waste their lives. I don't want to have contempt for people. That's a good point. I, you know what? It, and it didn't even occur to me like the political applications of our tastes in movies. But you know what? Maybe there's something there. That end line really hit me. I, it's easy to have contempt. That's an easy road to take. Yeah. And finally, uh, April from North Carolina also weighed in on the gender thing. Uh, and she mentioned uh, uh, Wes Anderson films do have a narrow demographic, but it does include his appeal to women uh, of, a, of a similar age and education level. It's all very white, though, no doubt. And you know what? This is something, and I think it's, I think it's a good point. Yeah, I mean, Wes Anderson is kind of a white person's director. That's not to say that there aren't any minorities in Wes Anderson films, but when you think about who the minorities are right. in them, you know, Kumar <laughs> is in is in a bunch of the movies. and In Grand Budapest, maybe he tried to correct that and it kind of didn't work out. Oh, I see what you're saying with Zero, the, right. the lobby boy and all that. Yeah, I suppose. But yeah, I, I think there maybe there is something there. And is that a criticism? Maybe. I don't know. Is it okay to make films that appeal to a specific ethnicity it is but you know obviously where we get sensitive is is it okay when right that ethnicity is white people at who most movies are made for anyway so you know i it's it's a touchy topic yeah and we we talked with someone in which someone was saying it was it's hard to relate to the perceived elitism right in wes anderson there's a disconnect for him in terms of the things that these characters care about because of who they are maybe how they grew up yeah. he can't relate to that because he's a different background yeah, I thought yeah. that was an interesting comment, and that's valid. And you know, and I think it, it was even brought up the 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 private school trust fund kid, right? That's your Wes Anderson crowd. Fair enough, maybe that's true. Uh, I'm not a trust fund kid. Neither am I. I did grow up in a in a middle class, maybe even upper middle class environment, and so yeah, I, it's not hard for me to relate to Wes Anderson characters. Yeah, for sure. Well, whatever. Um, Thank you for weighing in. We really appreciate it the, to the people that wrote in. By the way, if you did write in uh, with comments and we didn't get to your comments, apologies, but please continue to give us your thoughts. We love it. It gives Daniel and I topics, fodder, ammunition. For, for more discussions and uh, you make us think and we appreciate it. It makes me feel very grateful. Well, that we're kind of instigating a conversation that other people feel they can be part of and that means a lot to me. But to the matter at hand, 
Here we are. Here we are. Episode 11. We beat around the bush long enough. I say we get into it. Let's do it. So how much do you have on your rate card now? Uh, well, I cashed 150 first, and then another 100, so 250. And you have only spent $20. So you just keep circling the bill, John. Cash to tokens, tokens to cash. Now, slowly spend what's left of the 50. But that's just for show when the floor man comes around. Do it for an hour, take a break, do it again for an hour, so on. Be around. Where? I'll find you. So, Jeremy. Yeah. We did Wes Anderson in December, and we decided, why not throw an a- another Anderson in there? For an Anderson-ber, if you will. That's right. So this episode, we're going to talk about none other than Paul Thomas Anderson's freshman film. Heart Eight. Eight. Good old Here PTA. Here we go. Yeah, you know, Daniel, you may not even remember this, but our first conversation about film was about Paul Thomas Anderson. I think I remember it. And I think we were emailing about something, and then you said something like, have you seen The Master? And I replied about it, and we had a whole back and forth that lasted for a few emails about The Master and Paul Thomas Anderson. And I remember thinking, this is a guy that I want to have more conversations about film with. So then I remember when we saw each other face-to-face after those emails, we started engaging that conversation. And I remember thinking the same thing. One, I want to talk to this guy more about films. Two, this guy knows a shit ton about film. Hey. <laughs> so it was, it was, I felt like this is, it, yeah. really, it started here. Fooled another one. Yes. Fooled another one. You win. <laughs> Way to go. When we decided to do this, P.T. Anderson was, a, for me, this is one we had to do. Yeah. In the same way that, uh, you know, there, there were a couple of films, THX and Alien 3, that I said that we had to talk about. I knew going in, just knowing Daniel... Paul Thomas Anderson episode was going to happen as part of our 15 because, well, frankly, Daniel, you're so devout follower of PTA that uh, it was inevitable. Yeah, he's he's a filmmaker that he's impacted me maybe more than another filmmaker I can actually think of. And that's not that's not hyperbole. Like, I really mean that when I started watching Paul Thomas Anderson films they affected me in a way that other films hadn't. And they, they started exploring certain things that we'll, we'll talk about that I, I immediately resonated with and needed more of. Well, you know what? I say we dive right in. So in terms of a premise, uh, since I, I'd say of the two of us, you're the more Paul Thomas Anderson-y, uh, how about if you set up Heart 8 for us? All right. So the premise for Heart 8, really it's about this character named Sidney, played by Philip Baker Hall. The film begins... Uh, well, actually, outside of a diner where he encounters this other character, this other man named John, played by John C. Riley. But you know that John is looking for some money. And so here's this Sydney character who really takes him under his wing and shows him not only how to, not necessarily how to win money, but how to, pro- how to provide for himself at least the essentials. John then becomes entangled with this woman named Clementine, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and, and they are forced to call upon Sydney to take care of the situation that they find themselves in. There's this other side character who's actually important to the plot named Jimmy, who knows something about Sydney. And things happen. It's a P.T. Anderson film all the way in terms of relationships being formed and relationships disintegrating, but still these people trying to somehow find a way together. All right. 
I just hope that everyone listening realizes this means so much to me. It does. You know what? That first conversation that you and I had about the master, and it was it was clear from then that I wasn't looking at Paul Thomas Anderson at a level that I was satisfied with. So before we go on too much, let me ask you, where were you? When was it that you first saw Hard Eight? So Magnolia was my introduction to Paul Thomas Anderson. I actually hadn't seen Boogie Nights then. Oh, is that right? I don't think I saw Boogie Nights until a few years later. And I grew up in a pretty conservative household. There were certain films I felt like, oh, I probably, I don't know if I should watch those. Boogie Nights dealing with the porn industry is like, oh, I should probably stay away from that. I saw Magnolia and I was totally floored by that film. So then I kind of had to go back to see what this guy did. Right. Of course, Boogie Nights is part of that, but then Heart Eight, mm-hmm. going back to that film to see where it all started. And what about you? So from the start, I had this very strange relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson. I I resisted his films for quite a while. And I wish I had a good reason for resisting. There was something going on in sort of the mid to late 90s where you have this new school, and we've talked about this in the past, of, of like these filmmakers coming up, these, you know, the Wes Andersons and the Quentin Tarantinos and, of course, the, the Paul mm-hmm. Thomas Andersons. It was this sort of new generation of, I guess I would call them conspicuous filmmakers. Filmmakers that were not afraid of kind of showing their hand and showing their craft and saying, look, this is the work of a director. This isn't just a story I want to tell you. Everything that I had heard was Paul Thomas Anderson is, you know, he's he's in this he's in this new school and, you know, you should check him out. Boogie Nights, of course, was his big breakout moment. And I just flat resisted it. I just didn't, I mean, maybe some for similar reasons. I knew it was about the porn industry. It's not that I was like trying to take some kind of moral stand or anything like that. It was just that I felt like if I watch this movie, I'm going to have certain preconceived ideas challenged that I just don't really feel like having challenged right now. Right. No, for sure. That no, that's not the most noble of reasons to avoid a film, but I just thought, you know, I, I just, it's it's going to be a new take on porn and the people that make it. And, you know, we're, we're going to see that, you know, the highs and the lows and the, you know, the, 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 the beautiful personalities that are involved behind the scenes of these things. I'm like, you know, I just. You don't need to have that humanized at all. No. And I'm not, you know, and, I, and I'm just, I mean, for one thing, I'm not, and I, I wasn't really like a porny guy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sure, we've all been a little porny. Finally, I just, I broke down. I'm like, you know what? Everything is, everyone is saying that this is the most incredible film. So fine. Sure enough. Incredible film. Amazing. I waited until Magnolia was out on video. I watched that. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, all right, I'm sold. I'm sold on this guy. I first saw Heart 8 because I wanted to investigate. I think it was around the time that I saw Punch Drunk Love, actually. Really? Yeah, that I said, okay, let's go back and look. Okay, wow. From the very first scene, it's, it's such a distinct writing style. Yes. And, you know, the, the, there's there's a moment where John C. Riley at the beginning of the film, and he's sitting outside of this diner just looking dejected. Philip Baker Hall walks up. Finally, John C. Riley says, yeah, what is it? And right. he says, you know, you want some coffee? Or do you want a cigarette? John C. Riley just is sort of despondent. And then he says, I'm a guy that's offering to give you a cigarette. Buy a cup of coffee. And that's a line that only Paul Thomas Anderson would write. And so I I remember hearing that and going, okay, right from the start, he knew his own voice. Like right from the start. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing that we can't talk about Paul Thomas Anderson films without talking about his writing or his dialogue. Yeah. Because maybe more than any other filmmaker we've talked about, I mean, the Coen brothers actually probably fit up here with that is is they're so specific in, in what they're wanting to say in the dialogue in particular. Yeah. 
for me, I don't feel like those are improvised lines. Those are lines that were actually written so that the character would say them because the, the writer, also the director, is wanting to say something very specific about character through what these people are saying. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the Coens because every actor that's ever worked with the Coens has the same thing about them, which is down to the every ellipses and, and down to the every syllable. Right. You say those words as they're written. The Coens, when they have, they have a certain rhythm, they have a certain thing in mind. And if they write the word uh instead of um, you say uh, right, you don't say yeah. um. And that's that's just how it is. They're that specific and that intentional. And frankly, their dialogue is that good. Exactly the same with Paul Thomas Anderson. There's no like, well, maybe I could play with this or play with that. No, Paul Thomas Anderson, he has a way of writing that I don't really even know how to describe it exactly other than you know Paul Thomas Anderson dialogue when you hear it. I have to think that when you get a Paul Thomas Anderson script, no, this isn't like a, you know, hey, play around, wiggle around, see what you can do with this. No, the words are there and this is how it needs to sound and this is how you're going to need to say it. Absolutely. And, and we're maybe getting into things that are common to Anderson films. But one of the things I notice a lot, and it's, at the, it's there in, in Heart 8, is that the characters actually say one another's names quite a bit. Oh, yeah? Like I when guess I didn't notice that. When they're talking, like Sydney in that first scene, he says, hey, John, all the time. Yeah. And John is constantly referring to Sydney. And and so and I don't know if what that means necessarily, but I do think that it's a it's a stylistic yeah. uh, choice by P.T. Anderson that these characters when they talk they're going to refer to one another in terms of their names. It almost sounds very novelistic in that way. There's so much repetition in this dialogue. Like John, I'm 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 trying to do something for you, John. I'm trying to do you a favor. It's just like this maybe three different ways of saying the same thing. It's really affecting to me. And we've talked about this before. What P.T. Anderson does is similar to what Quentin Tarantino does, is that you know there's an artist behind what's going on. Yeah. But for some reason, I buy it a whole lot more with P.T. Anderson, and I'm willing to make that jump where he's going than I am with Quentin Tarantino. So can I tell you a story? Yeah. There, there was something called the um, Traveling Roadshow. Okay. Have you heard of these? Yes. The whole idea of this Traveling Roadshow was they would show famous films in the place where they were actually shot. And it's such a great idea. It was a fun. It was a, it was it was a fun idea. And of course, they decided to show Jackie Brown at LAX. Part of the event, Quentin Tarantino himself stands up and introduces the film. I I, I do like Quentin Tarantino. I'll admit it. And some days, Jackie Brown is actually my favorite Tarantino. I, film. It's my favorite. It's such a solid film. It is. I love it. Influenced by all these different black exploitation films from the seventies, which Quentin Tarantino is an aficionado of. And what he did was before the movie, he cut together a reel of maybe 15 minutes worth of black exploitation trailers from some of which Pam Greer was actually in. Whoa. So you got, so you got to see these trailers. Yeah. yeah. He shows these trailers before the film. Wow. So we're, you know, everybody in the crowd is just loving it. So, you know, he gets up and he's like, oh, I'm excited to see you. Have you seen this, my film? I'm excited to have you see these trailers. So the lights are about to go down for the actual feature and everybody's cheering and stuff like that. Well, I have an aisle seat and I look across the aisle at the seat essentially next to me, but across the aisle. And I'm like, who is that guy? I know him and I couldn't quite place it. Oh, and man. just before the lights went out, I realized, ah, that's Paul Thomas Anderson. That's amazing. It made me so happy because... Not just because, oh, I, you know, there's a director that I like, and here's two directors I like, and they're in the same place. But I liked being able to look over 
and see that not only is this artist that I admire right there, I like the fact that he's a fan. He's enjoying it. Yeah, I like the fact that he's a guy who doesn't just make these films and, you know, wants to be a serious artist. He's a guy who likes going to movies just like I do. And he wants to see what's going on. He wants to see what, what Quentin has to say about it. And he wants to be in the energy of being in a movie theater and seeing all this, well, theater, whatever. As much as I like Paul Thomas Anderson, I liked him twice as much after that day, just like seeing how enthusiastic he was. And sure enough, you know, later on, I saw he and Quentin interacting together and they were, you know, hugging and shaking hands and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it was it was just such a really great moment. So I need to share a P.T. Anderson story then. Sure. So I work in Long Beach. My friend um, whom I worked with at the time got a text from his wife and said they're filming a movie down the street, a movie called Inherent Vice. Um, And I said, well, I mean, I know that I've been waiting for this movie for years because right. i'm an obsessive pta fan i knew it was going to be happening so i'm like well we got to go there so um my friend ryan and i i would jump in the car and i didn't even think about it. i think we even had a meeting i was like i'm <laughs> not even i don't care we're just going to get in the car and we're going to go we drive um to the street and we see all the film crew and everything happening we pull we go to this house and and i see paul thomas anderson on the porch getting ready for a shot smoking a cigarette i've never i've never really smoked but i've always wanted to smoke camel lights because i know <laughs> those are the cigarettes that he smokes right. and if i'm not mistaken the, those are the cigarettes from heartache oh yeah absolutely and so um this guy who's kind of tripping and walking in front of us we're like wait that's walking phoenix i need to do something what do i do and so i asked i asked one of the the crew members i'm like hey do you, do you think it'd be weird if i went and asked him for a picture and he's like dude you can't do that right and i'm like really he's like no um, nothing happened. I even went later to try to just hug him. Were you something. trying to be like an extra or something? Or? I just wanted to shake his hand. I just wanted to talk to him. Yeah. But it never happened. But right. I saw him. Well, you, he wasn't yeah. far. Well, that's a great story. So in looking at Hard Eight, there are things about it that I am still trying, because, you know, I'm trying to locate threads. Right. I noticed that in all of his movies, where there's kind of like this sort of jigsaw puzzle quality. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like getting a box with a jigsaw puzzle in it, that A, isn't complete, mm-hmm. there are pieces missing, and B, there are also pieces that aren't ne- don't necessarily fit anywhere. So, and I think that- And you're saying this goes through all, like this is a, something that he does. I think this is something he does. Okay. I think that it's possible to look at that and have that be something that frustrates, mm-hmm. you know? But I like his movies too much to just kind of leave it there. Right. I'm thinking like of moments of like the scene where Clementine and Sydney are in the diner. Yes, I have the same question. And there's a fight somewhere else in the diner and Gwyneth Paltrow gives a look like, yikes. For sure. It's not really addressed again. You know, it's like, what is that? The bride and groom that are in the casino and the bride has a neck brace on. It's such, an, it's such a specific thing there. And you can look at that and, and, I, and I find my mind going being like, well, okay, there's a, there is a marriage later on in this movie. There's kind of a broken, beaten up version yeah. of, a, of a marriage. And am I reading that too, too hard into that though? Is, that, is it possible that it just is a bride that happens to have a neck brace on? And that, but that's strange. Maybe those were two people in the casino the day he was shooting. And that's, you know, I, and my mind goes in all these places and I'm like, I don't know how hard I should be working to make that fit into something, but he's such a great director that he, and he is such, he's an artist with such facility that I also don't feel comfortable just writing it off. 
For sure. And then I think that's one of the things where I, I felt the same way about that moment in the diner where there's that argument or whatever. And I couldn't help but connect it to a previous moment that Sydney actually has with Jimmy. Yeah. And both of these moments, so Clementine in the, in the moment in the diner, Jimmy in the moment in the casino, they're almost getting to a point where Sydney the character himself, there's another layer kind of being explored. Right. And then there's a distraction. So with Jimmy, it's the Kino numbers come up and he's like, oh, excuse me. In the diner, Clementine's asking him about his his family, about his kids. And before they get further into the conversation, that happens. There's almost this distraction. Right. I don't think this is it, but there is an element in which it seems like Sydney is such a powerful character. Yeah. He can almost make those things happen. Right. He doesn't want to be uncovered. It's almost like he has the power to create these distractions. Yeah. Obviously, I given the film, I don't think that he has that superpower necessarily, but there is maybe that's it's saying something like that. Mm. The obvious retort to that would be, but that's just Paul Thomas Anderson creating course, that situation because sure. he doesn't want to. But it's interesting. I'm, I'm very, I, I think more than ever, just as a creative individual and, and someone who's just very interested in films and other types of art forms, I'm so interested in this idea of what I've heard some artists refer to as closure. Hmm. How little can you show or tell and have the audience fill in the rest for themselves? Right. At what point does that become a frustration and at what point does that become inspiration and how many people are going to hang on with you, you know, as you continue to remove, I don't know, touch points and places of reference right up until we get to a a film like The Master, where it feels like I'm given so little in terms of coherent threads that I can, you know, sort of locate, but I know they're all still there. And it seems like the deeper I dig, the more gold I find, but is there a bottom? Like, can I, you know, is there going to be a point where it's just like, well, this is just, I mean, now I'm just making things up to please myself, you know? And that's that weird sort of area that I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson occupies. I, I, and I don't know what to do with it. I think that's partly why he's such a successful artist, but I don't know, maybe call it pride or something like that. I'm always struggling with how hard am I willing to work for this? Absolutely. And I do think that he is the artist that is actually fine with following his instincts, whatever that inspiration might be. Oh, this seems interesting. I'm actually not sure necessarily why it's interesting to me or why this should happen, but I'm going to put it in there. He has a confidence that is coming up in his mind as he's creating the story that perhaps it does fit in some way. And it's not necessarily his job or responsibility to tell you how it fits. Because mm-hmm. he might not even know. It's okay that it's there, which you just said. His his films get more that way as they keep going. There's a real turn in, in his filmmaking themes or styles, really, with Punch Drunk Love. He began to remove um, whatever was concrete that maybe people could stand on every film since then. Yeah. And I feel like his first few films, Heart Eight's different, but there's still three characters, three relationships that were kind of people were interacting with. And then they just kind of increased with Boogie Nights and then Magnolia. And then he kind of went the opposite way and said, okay, we're going to take the characters away. Yeah, Um, There's only going to be a few. And so whatever people could hold on to in Boogie Nights and in Magnolia with the relationships, they've not been able to hold on to since, it seems like. There's a line in Heart Eight. It just, it stuck with me and it just sort of like kind of echoed with me. And that was, 
you know, John is essentially asking him, you know, why early in the film, why are you doing this? Right. Why are you helping me? Like, what, what are you getting from all this? And Sydney replies something along the lines of, I guess I'd hope that you'll do the same for me one day. And as a person who has seen a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows, right. you know that, oh, okay, I got it. Later in the film, Sydney's going to be in some kind of bind and, and then John is going to have to be the one that, I mean, that's the only thing that that can mean, but that doesn't really happen, you right. know? And so, and so you're left there going, was that like a red herring line then to set me up? Was that just a switcheroo or are we meant to take something different from that? Is John helping Sydney out of a situation throughout this whole thing? And and I think, you know, I came to the conclusion that, yeah, he is in a way. He's certainly helping him out of a guilt situation to a certain degree. But then then, you know, then I get to that same sort of Paul Thomas Anderson point that I get to with every single one of his films, which is like, a, all right, hang on, though. How hard do I need to work? I mean, you know, I, I can make that connection. Yeah. But that's such a fuzzy connection that I don't know. I want it to be right. And I feel like that's one of the that's one of the staples of Paul Thomas Anderson, where I, he's he's up there on the screen saying to his audience, if you think that you're right. For sure. It's OK. If you think that that's too much of a stretch, that's also right. That's okay. For me, it, that's that that's something that I just, you know, I, it's easier now for me at, at my point in life to kind of accept that. As a younger person going to films, I, I, I wanted a more definitive take on what's the intention? What do you want me to take from this? Teach me how to watch your film. And Paul Thomas Anderson, I feel like is saying, no, no, no. Teach yourself how to watch my film. I may, may, I don't know. Is that too far? I don't know. No, I mean, that's, and I think that's one of the reasons why I love Paul Thomas Anderson so much is I look, that's how I watch films. Like if a film is telling me too much how to see it or what to think about it, it doesn't actually leave room for there to be much beyond what is being shown. I don't connect with it as much. And I think with Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm constantly making those leaps. And so what is he wanting to say? How is he wanting me to feel? What could I actually import? Uh, he gives me freedom to actually import some meaning into what he's doing. And I really appreciate that. That's just how I, I read stories. That's how I watch films is I like to make connections. But your point is, is hitting on a story that I remember him telling, which I think is connected in some ways. He said that when he started screening Boogie Nights, he would go in to the theater sometimes. He'd watch the film to see how other people were interacting with it. And he, he said there's this one specific moment in which he went in early on in the screening process. There's this scene in Boogie Nights when William H. Macy's character, you know, his wife, is he's constantly finding her having sex with these strangers at these parties. Right. That's just part of who her character is. Well, William H. Macy gets fed up and he goes to the car, he gets a gun, he shoots and kills his wife. And he says when that happened, the audience started laughing. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, shit. Right. I screwed this up. Right. But then William H. Macy comes back out and he kills himself. Right. And he said the, the theater went silent. Yeah. And he said, okay. It's like he was expecting something to happen in that moment, mm -hmm. but he didn't necessarily know when it would or was surprised when it didn't happen, maybe when he thought it would. Yeah. But that something else was more important to the audience yeah. um, or affecting than he anticipated. And he was okay with that. 
See, that's that's so interesting. And for for multiple reasons, because number one, partly because like when I look at that, that, that moment is the culmination of a series of scenes right. in which we see, you know, William H. Macy's wife with all these dudes and all this kind of stuff. By the way, the lady playing the wife is Nina Hartley. She's Oh, I didn't know that. She's a porn star. Okay. Okay, so she's, I mean, you know, I the fact that I know her name <laughs> as a porn star <laughs> should tell you something that she's actually a pretty famous porn star because I don't know that I can name, you know, like more than a handful of porn right. stars. That's the thing. So so you see Nina Hartley and, you know, every 15 minutes or so, she's fucking some guy and it's played as comedy. I mean, it kind of is. It's played oh, as yeah, comedy. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so when William H. Macy finally walks in and shoots, I, I think it's her and her lover, right? At that, both yeah, of them, he right? Yeah, he kills both of them. He kills both of them and then he kills himself. It's the most understanding th thing in the world that people would think that this sort of litany of comedy scenes would end in the culmination of comedy, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, of course they would. So that's why that's so interesting that that would take him by surprise. What he's wanting to do with his films is let the camera do a lot of the work in terms of exploring these different people and these different connections and in the editing, which I think is so tremendous in his films and the music. I mean, there's just so many, all of the elements, I guess we're talking about all of them. And he creates this thing people experience and yeah. they're able to experience in the way that they do. And now we're kind of getting into the technical aspects of Heart 8. But one of the things I love, and even starting from the beginning that he does throughout his films, is that the camera is a camera that reveals. Right. I mean, with the different tracking shots, with the steady cams, with the, the, yeah. the moving in onto a character's face or hands. Yeah or coffee cups, and it's so obvious. You know this is a film. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's a conspicuous camera. Absolutely. It's not, it's not, the, it's not a Coen Brothers camera. I want you to feel that this is a camera move going on right now. I don't want this to be something that is kind of in the back of your mind, like, oh, I have a certain feeling. No, the camera is moving, and I want you to know it. It does create these questions. Okay, well, why am I seeing these two characters shake hands in this moment? I mean, right. why is that where it moves? Why does the character in the moment between when Sydney is waiting for Jimmy to come to his home, the camera is constantly moving toward the door yeah. and you're waiting for something to happen and it doesn't, but it does the exact same thing when something does happen. So I just have all these questions. Yeah. The staging and the camera work and even in that first sort of diner scene is so interesting right. to me. First of all, very clearly influenced by Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's framed the same way and whatnot. And by the way, um, I think it's not the only 1996 film that was influenced by Pulp Fiction. Same with Bottle Rocket. They also had a diner scene framed just like Tarantino totally. did it. And, but it's interesting because we do a shot reverse shot toward the beginning. This is my, I had this question for you, so I'm glad you're going here. But it's very interesting because, uh, you know, we do, uh, and I think we even mentioned all the way back in the Blood Simple episode, mm -hmm. where there's a few moments of Jonathan Demi type shots where you would swear that Sydney is looking into the lens. Absolutely. And that's that's very interesting. And yet John C. Riley is almost looking into the lens. It cuts back reverse shot. Sydney is looking into yes. the lens. And it really sort of gives you this very, very subtle feeling. Sydney is piercing into the heart of the matter. Mm. Whereas John is trying to face this conversation but not fully able to. But every time it cuts back to Sydney, it's like, no, I'm looking into your soul. You know, how intentional and how directed was that? I'm just going to assume that it was completely intentional. It's too right. Yeah. To how not can be. you not? Right. Yeah. 
But then it goes into an interesting thing where, you know, they, you know, he pays the bill and they stand up and all this kind of stuff. And, and all, the, all the camera work has been fairly locked. But then we start this moving camera bit. But it's in such an odd moment because the music starts to ramp up and the camera starts to do this push and all this kind of stuff. But it's during dialogue about John telling Sidney about how he doesn't suck dick. Yeah, well, I'm telling you something right now. I don't suck dick, okay? I understand that. This is the last time I'll ask. You want my help? I'll fuck you up if you fuck with me. I know three types of karate, okay? Jiu-jitsu, Aikido, and regular karate. It, it, it almost seems like he's operating his camera and he's working his music almost in defiance of what the scene is about rather than to support what the scene is about. I don't know. There's something that, that kind of does something. It, it, it goes back to that sort of the conspicuousness of defying what we know scenes should be like and how they should crescendo. And that's the other thing too. The music actually crescendos a little too early. Yeah. It kind of hits this crescendo point before the scene is quite over. And you're like, oh, couldn't you have saved that until like the cut to the credits or something like that? But he doesn't do that. And like I said, very conspicuous. But why? I don't know why, right. <laughs> but, it, but it does. I mean, it's funny. Like, yeah. That's a funny scene in terms of what he, what John is, is making sure Sidney understands right. what he's not going to do. Um, and Sidney's response, which you see later on in the character, is that Sidney is a, his past. He's a pretty straight-laced guy. Sure. He's an old-timer, as Jimmy would call him, yeah. right? And, and classy. Never and, not in control. Right, for sure. And so what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing with the camera, with the music, um, with the pushing in keeps you off balance you want to laugh you're forced to deal with sydney it's just this fascinating interplay which kind of reminds me actually of the motel scene in a way yeah when you have sydney who is primarily a person who's in control comes into the scene in which it's not that he's out of control but that he's in a situation where everything else around him is out of control and kind of chaotic right who knows you're here I don't know, the guy's wife? I, don't, I know, Sid. It's it's the front desk. I don't know, man. John, don't fuck with me. Sid, I'm not fucking with you. I, it's the front desk. I don't know. Jimmy knows we're here. Look, Jimmy knows we're here, but it doesn't matter, all right? Let's just go. Let's go. Yeah, Sydney is always in in every situation. He's the calm that seems to attract chaos, though. Yes, and it's it's such a, it's such an odd sort of juxtaposition because I mean it's so and this is true with every Paul Thomas Anderson movie is you feel like you're seeing rather than the story you're seeing a small piece of an enormous story. Paul Thomas Anderson is giving you just enough to kind of imply how enormous a story you're actually seeing. And Sydney is certainly that. Like, of course, you know, we hear that Sydney is, you know, the real reason that he's helping John out is because you find out that in Atlantic City years earlier he had killed John's father, but he doesn't want John to know. And, you know, you get the sense that Sydney was some kind of fixer or some right. kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe Hitman is going too far, but maybe it's not, you know, and he spent that time gambling. And is he living off of his fixer money or is he like a semi-successful gambler but not really or you never really know you don't know you just know that he just has this sort of solidity to him that he's just he's seen a lot of shit and his life is in such a state that he's seen too much to continue to pursue the way things used to be but but for some reason 
you just know that yeah, there's uh, there's a Jimmy played by Samuel L. Jackson. Of course, there's a there's a John John C. Riley. There's a Clementine Gwyneth Paltrow, and all these people are a mess mm-hmm. in a way. A different every each one of them a different kind of mess. You just get the sense that Sydney's whole life he's only surrounded himself with messes, right? You know, and this is just the latest one. Tonally, I don't know. There's something that that Paul Thomas Anderson does where he fills his movie. You may not agree with this. For all the hope and for all the beauty and that that I see in in much of his movies, there is a strange sort of unease and darkness and kind of pessimism that this kind of creeping up the back of your neck sort of thing. And I don't I don't know how to put it. You know, it's interesting to follow up a Wes Anderson episode with a Paul Thomas Anderson. They move in different directions. Yeah, yeah. Wes Anderson, you know, like you know, we talked about you can't stop smiling. With a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I love it, but I also can't stop dreading. Mm-hmm. There's just, there's a, there's a dread underneath everything. And I'm like, the second that you see Jimmy, you know, Jimmy's a bad guy. Yeah. Jimmy is going to mess something up. Mm-hmm. Before Jimmy really even says or does anything, you're just like, oh man, something's going on here. And I, I that's, it's that chaos curve that Paul Thomas Anderson seems to introduce in every film. And you're like, oh boy, how's, how's this going to work? Something I love about about Paul Thomas Anderson films is that he his characters are constantly seeking some sense of family. Yeah. In many ways there's there's a surrogate family, right? These characters who don't necessarily who shouldn't be together find each other and um whether it's in a casino in the porn industry in the San Fernando Valley over this game show putting in a warehouse job uh right. Scientology or something like that or sure. in the oil fields. I mean these characters who aren't family become family. Right. And the thing that you're naming the sense of dread for me is that there's a tenuous nature to these relationships. And I feel like in every one of his films, maybe not every character, but a lot of the characters, those relationships begin to disintegrate. Mm-hmm. And it's not even necessarily that those relationships are, they don't like each other, but they might be separated. I mean, in the case of Heart Eight, they're separated. So the relationship that John and Sydney formed they can't have in the same way. Right. Even though there's an m- amazing moment of tenderness, right? When Sydney calls John and says, I just want you to know, I want you to know something. I have something important to tell you. And you need to know that I've, I've loved you like my own son, right? Yeah. And that's so touching. But they actually won't ever experience what that'll be like. Yeah. And you have the same in, in Boogie Nights where these characters become close and then all of a sudden they disintegrate. In Magnolia, you have, you have some characters actually coming together while right. others are separated by either death or whatever it is. He does something really beautiful with relationships and brings them people together, but he's also not afraid of showing you that those feelings of being together might be fleeting and might not be there forever. Yeah, And that is, that is hard. That is tough to, to swallow. And it's something that, while I love his films, they make me feel deeply for those reasons. Right. And grateful. Grateful for the relationships that I have that are connected. That are together. You mean in your own life? In my own life. Yeah. So so that moment toward the end that you were just talking about where Sydney and John have that conversation, you know, I want you to know I, you know, I love you. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something that Paul Thomas Anderson would, would still do today? Huh. That's a great question. No. His films started getting a lot less whatever tenderness there might have been after Punch Drunk Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if he would do it. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I, I look at, I think of like the, the you know, what I would probably call the big tender moment in Magnolia, 
which I would say is, uh, you know, the the Tom Cruise, Jason Robards scene, mm-hmm. powerful scene. Um, but it, it's uh, and, and and it seems like an evolution from the from the sort of scene that he wrote in Hard Eight. Right. Even in that, there's an intensity and there's an abstraction to that scene that you know Hard Eight was. Uh, as much as I did enjoy that part in Hard Eight, that's more direct than than Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. was comfortable with later. I mean, even when you look at Punch Drunk Love, uh, yeah, I don't think it's accidental that, you know, Barry Egan, you know, his most passionate expression of how much he cares for yes. is, is him telling her how much he wants to smash her face in and all that, you know. I love that. It's beautiful. beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah, because he's doing what he can do. And uh, but that to me, that's Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah. much more so than I want you to know that I've always loved you like a son, mm-hmm. you know, I personally. No. But of course, you know, that gets into what else does Hard Eight do that he probably left behind. There was a moment in which the music I thought in this film was a little on the nose or a little disjointed to me in terms of maybe what was being shown or it it just seemed odd. Like, I actually really liked the diner scene and the music there. I thought that was a really cool juxtaposition of what's going on. Yeah. There's a moment, I think, when Sydney is giving the money to Jimmy, and the music just seemed like it was just off to me. It okay. didn't work in the same way as that diner scene. Right. Because I felt like, oh, what you're showing me and what's happening actually in this at this point in the film is different than what you're trying to, to do with the music. Right. And that, to me, seemed like a stretch. If we're keeping in that same conversation of is he doing things and I should be asking questions, that that just seemed like uh, just kind of a, a mistake. Yeah. There's also one thing that I was confused by comes back to that diner scene in which you do have these shot reverse shots and then he changes to kind of like a close over, over the shoulder shot and he begins to film it in that way, right. which seemed like a distraction to me. Wow. And maybe he was attempting to do something with the camera there and, and wanting to reveal something, but it, it just seemed totally different. Like, oh, I don't know why you chose to change in that moment. I'm always I'm always sort of conscious of moments that kind of take me out of it. And there's a flashback moment that doesn't right. make sense to me. Totally. And it's, of course, you know, it, well, it's the moment we were talking about earlier where Sydney walks up and sees John sitting there on the, you know, next to the door and looking dejected. I don't know. Is he talking to Clementine during he that? And then he's She's talk- asking him how you met. How you met. And so he remembers that. And it's like, well, yeah, I remember that too. That was 15 minutes ago. And it just seemed like that was kind of a wasted effort. It felt like handholding in a way that Paul Thomas Anderson is the anti-handholder. Absolutely. You know? Now, that's not to say that I didn't appreciate. Like, for example, I, I kind of enjoyed the flashback to his pants catching on fire. It was so quick. Yeah. And it was so perfect. You know those big monster books of matches like those Big daddy ones with like 40 matches in them. Yeah? I had one of those in my pocket once, and they just lit on fire, just exploded. Oh. It has something to do with friction, I guess. Spontaneous friction. I mean, they just went off. I mean, I'm standing there in line for a movie, and all of a sudden, just wham! Whoa! Whoa! Like that, you know? Scared the shit out of me. Of course, you know, John C. Riley has this fantastic improvisational ability, and even just in that moment, you know, him like, putting his pants out and then looking around (laughs) to see if anyone saw it and like kind of like could you believe it but of course (laughs) no one did i think people might argue with this because of maybe the incoherence of some of the later films but i think he's actually gotten a lot better in pacing oh yeah and i noticed that the last quarter of the film for me in heart eight goes way too fast Hmm. it's not necessarily because it's fast it actually just feels very very sudden and fast because of the rest of the pacing of the of the first three quarters of the film. Yeah. 
which seemed really slow and, and kind of it's building to something. And then all of a sudden this thing happens in the motel and then they're on the road. Sydney's talking with Jimmy. Jimmy knows all this stuff and it just kind of goes really quickly. Yeah. And I don't know how it would change that. Maybe if it was seated earlier or maybe if, I don't know how you would make that last quarter longer if you need to. It just felt off. Yeah, I can see that. I won't go so far as to say it felt off to me, but yeah, I think it's not of a piece with all of his work. Mm-hmm. Well, really, his he does have he does he is kind of a master of the slow climax. I mean, it's funny we've been talking about his films this whole time, but we you know we we haven't even mentioned his most famous film, which is of course There Will Be Blood, right? Which has one of the most famous climaxes. Oh yeah, in movies, <laughs> you know, of course. I mean, it's been parodied. Yeah, it's been parodied so many times, and you know the. But, you know, as I always say, one of the surest signs of a very influential and memorable pieces of art is how much has it been parodied. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we had our Spielberg episode where we talked about Saving Private Ryan Beach scene, it, which has become one of the most parodied movie scenes ever. Sadly. Yeah. It's just, but the same goes for, you know, I'll drink your milkshake yeah. and all that. But that's, I think it's partly because the, there's so much power there. You know, I, I, I've got to ask this question about Hard Eight. What what do you think is with the $6,000? Hmm. You know what I'm asking I there? do know. I do. Yeah, yeah. Because $6,000 happens twice. Right. Of course, at the beginning, this is how much John C. Riley needs to bury his mother. And later, it's how much Sydney gives up mm-hmm. to Jimmy. And it's such a specific amount. And I just, my mind kept going down all these different roads. Like, wait, so is he... Did he actually have $6,000 to give to John when he pretended that he didn't have it? Or but if that's the case, then why did he go through all of this, like, you know, essentially dedicating part of his life to John if he wasn't even willing to give him $6,000 that he already had? Or maybe he genuinely didn't have it or felt like he couldn't spare it. Or I don't know. I mean, I just, my, my mind kept ping-ponging back and forth. Maybe it's just a number that Paul Thomas Anderson landed on that seemed like it was a good thing to turn into sort of a chorus. I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I had the thought about the money and, and the way I've I've thought about it. This is, again, why I love P.T. Anderson films, because I feel like I have the freedom to do this. Um, I actually think that Sidney had the money. I don't think he knew that John needed that when they first met, but I still think that he had the money. And when he promised John to help him find a way of at least eating and, and getting a room, that he maybe have put it aside if things weren't going to work out, at least he would have this to give to John. Hmm. Then I actually think that things ended up working out pretty well. They established a relationship and he got a lot more from John than he actually expected to. Yeah. And so John became something for him when he just thought maybe he was going to be something for John. I mean, that was, that's, a, that's my thinking about it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's valid and more coherent than anything that I came up with. So I, 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 it makes sense, but... Who, who knows, knows, right? Who knows? Who knows? So, hard eight, where does it rank? So I've thought a lot about this. So I'm going to put it at number, number five. Number five, okay. Number five. So here's my rank. Remember, you got to go down. I know you like to start with your best, but the right way to do it is to count down. Okay. So I'm going to go- Does that work that way? It does. It. No, it works. It works fine. So I'm going to go with Inherent Vice. Okay. Hard Eight. Yeah. Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. The Master. Uh, and then this is where it really gets tricky for me. Right. The final three. Yeah, the final three. I, I Okay. And then I'm going to go with, damn it. I'm going to go with Magnolia, mm-hmm. Punch Drunk Love, and There Will Be Blood. Wow. Okay. 
Okay. The reason why it's tricky for me is because I don't want to put Magnolia at number three. I actually want it to be right next to Punch Drunk Love yeah, at yeah. number two. Right. And, and sometimes I feel like I'm tempted to put Punch Drunk Love number one. Sure. But it's hard for me to not put There Will Be Blood up there. Yeah. So what about you? Uh, I wish that I had an order like that. I don't. I don't know what my there's order just, is. There's not too many. No, I know. I know. I, I don't have an excuse. But the thing, it's it's strange with Paul Thomas Anderson because I just, I feel like he's the kind of filmmaker that I don't even know how to rank his films. And that makes it, how, how do you say, well, Inherent Vice next to There Will Be Blood? I mean, yeah, I like There Will Be Blood better than Inherent Vice, but it's just such an abstract thing for me to even kind of stack them. I mean, whatever. This is all sounds like excuses. I would say for me, I would probably put Hard Eight in a similar spot. Okay. okay I'm going to go so far as to say Hard Eight and Inherent Vice would probably vie for the last position. And the only reason that I say that is because I don't, I don't know what to do with Inherent Vice. Right. And I, I feel that's what I, I feel the same way. I enjoyed it immensely, but I don't know why, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think, I think part of it is that I, I love the movie for like three quarters of it. And that last quarter, I just, I don't even, I don't understand. I don't even know what's happening. Right. I mean, it's not really even, it's not even like a master thing where it's like, what is happening? I mean, at least I know what's happening, even if I don't know why it's happening. Yeah, totally. With inherent advice, I legitimately don't understand what's happening that last half hour. <laughs> you don't. And the thing is, is it's from what I understand, it's even a little bit more coherent than the pension than novel. The pension, well, which I attempted and I did not get okay. through. I don't know if you nope. read it. No, well. I wish I could say yep, but no. I no, no, no. I made it, I don't know what, 100 pages in and I was like, eh, not even that, like maybe like 70 pages. I was like, yeah, I'm good. So it, it's probably down there. Um, for my top spot, I it's I Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love are kind of duking it out. Okay. I loved There Will Be Blood enormously. I feel like I loved it almost as much as everyone else loved it. There it is. Yeah. You know, I don't know. The Master, I didn't, honestly, it wasn't until talking to you that I, I really had a terrific affection for it. Oh, man, I love that. I really love it. I watched it, went home, and just wrote pages of notes about it. Yeah. Interesting. And I think this is one of our very first conversations we ever had about it. I remember seeing all these trailers and things and promotional materials for The Master with all these interesting scenes, none of which made it into the movie. <laughs> right. Which still mystifies me. I'm like, clearly you shot all this with the intention and of it beautiful. going into the movie. Yeah, gorgeous stuff. And then, yeah, I went to, the, to this film and I don't, I, maybe one or two cuts from these elaborate trailers made it into the film, but just nothing, nothing from the marketing was in the actual movie. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Very bizarre. But anyway, I think I'll always love Magnolia. Yeah. It's such a beautiful oddity. And same goes for Punch Drunk Love. I just, you know, I, I don't know. I Magnolia probably at the end of the day. I, I just don't know that it, it can it can be overtaken. But Punch Drunk Love, I just I this is a weird thing to say, but I don't feel like a character's made sense of me more than Barry Egan really? for what that means. I mean it's no, just that's interesting. Love that film. I feel like Barry Egan was Paul Thomas Anderson's dignan. Yeah. It's this character that's so fully and beautifully and completely realized that you understand the minute you see him, but yet I've never seen anything like that. In a, I've never seen that character in a movie before, you know, and I don't even know how to describe him other than I know that guy, but I haven't seen that ever. Right. I drove hours to go see Punch Drunk Love when it came out in theater. I was fell in love with it. And then when it came into 
to Lancaster. I said, I told some friends we need to go watch it. And I remember watching with these friends and I just remember this moment in which a friend who was sitting behind me, I think, stood up and whispered in my ear, what the fuck is this? And then just walked out. It was, it was like halfway into the movie. He just could not bear it anymore. Yeah. There's so many scenes from that that I love so much. I love, I love when he, I just love that movie. Some maybe it is my favorite. I don't know. I, I, I know. I feel that when I talk about it, I'm like, yeah, for sure. I love when he has to explain to the restaurant manager about why the bathroom <laughs> is beat up. <laughs> Sir, the bathroom was just torn apart. Yeah. Did you do it? No. You didn't just smash up the bathroom. No. Well, who did? I don't know. Sir, your hand is bleeding. I cut myself. How? On my knife. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Yeah, but I didn't do anything. Sir, I've got no way to prove that you smashed up the bathroom. I didn't do that. I didn't. Look, I'm going to have to ask you to go. Okay. I didn't do that. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. All right, please don't do this to me. Sir, I'm going to call the police. All right. Can I just stay? Sir, I'm going to crack your fucking head open. Get out of here. It's a hard eight. This is such a hard thing to kind of really get into the guts of because it's just Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, how can you... How can you talk about it? I love it. It's good. I right. love his movies. I mean, I feel like a real analysis of the movie needs to be like a, a master's course rather than an hour podcast. I know. I mean, there's just so many elements that t- would take up hours, it feels like. Nevertheless. So how do we feel? Hard eight. Does the film stand up? Is it a completist movie? You need to watch it. Yeah. I don't. I think it stands up. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that um, I don't think it's the Paul Thomas Anderson. If you've never seen a Paul Thomas Anderson film, don't start with this one. But in and of itself, it's a film that you need that, that's worth watching. It's good. It's probably his straightest film. I think so. I think it's probably the like easiest. Plot wise, you mean? Plot wise, I mean, just in terms of just there's the least to kind of decipher in in Hard Eight yeah, of all of his films. I'd agree with that. If you have an appreciation for There Will Be Blood. Boogie Nights, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking of his biggest hits. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, I mean, I, I think Hard Eight absolutely is is something that you should take in. He's a pretty realized artist at that point. He still had some growing to do, but yeah, I mean, you can't deny this is, this is a, this is the birth of a, a fantastic artist. And I do think that if you haven't seen any of Paul Thomas Anderson films, which would be crazy to me, I think you probably have. I'd probably say start with Magnolia. Then if you're wondering if you should see any more recent Paul Thomas Anderson films, I'd say start with Punch Drunk Love because mm. I think that gives you a better idea of what the films will be after that. And Magnolia is, I think, just a good introduction of what he's interested in. Yeah. If there's an ethos of Paul Thomas Anderson, it's come with questions, leave with questions. Questions are okay. His movies are movies to be talked about, not just to be watched. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm going to go so far as to say that I doubt this podcast would exist without the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. It's true. Well, uh, you know what? I I think we're going to say that's it for this episode of The Freshman 15. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Hard Eight, Paul Thomas Anderson. Daniel is saying, absolutely see it, and I'm agreeing. Great film. Uh, All the work of Paul Thomas Anderson is, is worth seeing. Maybe start with a different film, but whatever the case, as long as you eventually meander to Hard Eight, it's an experience worth having. 
And if you want to reach us to tell us what you think of this episode of the podcast or to tell us what you think about the film that we talked about or how you disagree with our analysis, you can reach us on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, you can email us at freshman15film at gmail.com. That's freshman15film at gmail.com. We do love hearing you engage with what we're saying, even if you disagree. By the way, one thing that I want to note, this is, of course, our December 15th episode of the Freshman 15. We typically do our episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month. We're going to be taking January 1st off, but we will be back on January 15th for uh, yet another episode. And coming up at the end of the month here, at the end of December, uh, a very special event that we're hoping you'll join us for. And that, of course, is the top 10 freshman films as chosen by Daniel and I. So don't miss that. Possibly the most difficult episode to prepare for. Probably. If you have uh, any interest in knowing ultimately what do Daniel and I feel are the 10 greatest freshman films in order and we will count them down then tune in it's it is not to be missed oh man the only other thing before we leave is as always we want to mention our friends at steelcraft board of a desire to see people come together over food and drinks steelcraft unites local eateries with a communal dining space in long beach for more information please visit steelcraftlb.com thanks for listening have a happy and december see ya